And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature, history, art, to philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, welcome to Deep Down Things. I'm Dr. Dave Devil, a professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas and the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. I'm joined today, as always, by our managing editor, popular speaker, writer, and all, all things wonderful, Liz <laughs> Kelly. How are you? I am well, my friend. All right. I have, to, I have to introduce Liz in a different way each time, just because... <laughs> to capture my nuance. To capture her nuances. Yes, and well, color. It, we, we have a lot of color here at Logos. Uh, and in fact, the article we're talking about today is one in which we include some color illustrations. We have on today Daniel Frampton, who is an academic and writer and researcher and editor from Great Britain, who is specializing in the Catholic intellectual tradition art, literature, and many other things. Daniel, welcome to Deep Down Things. Hello there. Hello from Sussex in England. It's very nice to be here. That is wonderful. Sussex, that's, uh, that's Hilaire Bellick's old stomping grounds. Uh, in, indeed. He, uh, he obviously came from France originally, but uh, he right. came to England and fell in love with yeah. Sussex. He's... Sussex is the finest county in England. Indeed. <laughs> ha- have, you ever, uh, have you ever hiked through Sussex as Bellick was prone to do? Oh, indeed. Yes, the South Downs. Yeah. I've been to uh, Belloc's house um, as well. Oh, that's it's fantastic. It's a wonderful place. So I highly recommend it for any, anybody who comes to England. Excellent. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your career. Uh, so I am a writer uh, who, a few years ago, I finished a PhD, which largely focused on Catholic intellectual culture in Britain, mostly in the 20th century. And I've spent... Uh, most of my time since then focusing uh, on as an independent academic writing about Catholic intellectuals and artists, including uh, Sutherland, but also looking at famous writers like Chesterton. And uh, I've, yes, I've largely written articles regarding those authors and artists. And also I work for the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children as well, which Mm. is uh, Britain's oldest pro-life society. Beautiful. That is wonderful. Uh, Daniel and I are in a new book. We both have articles on Chesterton uh, that's just out from Cambridge Scholars Publishing. Daniel, what's the title of the book we're in? I forget now. (laughs) I think it's Catholicism and Literature. Indeed, yes. It's a a very good book, and it was published in May, I believe. So uh, people, please do feel free to go online and purchase it. Absolutely. We'll put that in the show notes. Well, Daniel... We're here to talk about this article about an artist, uh, Graham Sutherland. He's somebody that you argue, uh, he, he was often called a romantic or neo-romantic, but you argue that he combined modernism in art successfully with Catholic ideas. And it's a pretty fascinating piece about another 20th century Catholic figure. Could you tell us a little bit about Graham Sutherland, who he was, uh, what he did? Maybe are there any paintings that people would recognize if they looked him up? Well, Graham Sutherland was in the 20th century regarded as one of Britain's greatest, most innovative artists. Unfortunately, recently he's been 
most well known for painting the rather infamous portrait of Winston Churchill, which was actually featured in an episode of uh, Netflix's The The Crown, actually, <laughs> uh, which was unfortunate since, since this is what people mostly know him now for. And it was, uh, I think, Churchill, when, when it was actually unveiled um, to him in Westminster Hall, he, he said it was a, a, a remarkable example of modern art. <laughs> and, and, um, but actually, apart from the portrait, Graham Sutherland was actually a remarkable landscape artist, uh, specializing in particular in sort of that sort of neo-romantic style of art, which I started to suspect uh, many years ago actually had something to do with his own Catholicism. And in terms of his most sort of well-known works, I would say that it would likely be uh, his crucifixion, which was painted well rather finished in 1946, which mm. is based in St. Matthew's in Northampton, uh, a town in England, mm-hmm. which uh, incorporated sort of modernistic elements. What would you say is the definition of modernism? And I mean, modern is one of those terms that people throw around and it's, you know, it can mean all sorts of things depending on what field of art you're in. What do you think defines it in painting? Well, modernism is quite perilous word that uh, academia likes to uh, sort of throw around and it's been unable to shake off. But at least in the area of art and art history, uh, modernism has been um, sort of taken to mean a sort of uh, experimentation in perspective and sometimes sort of meaning a relentless innovation, um, which led to a succession of art movements. Um, so really you're starting off with Impressionism, then it leaps forward to Cubism, um, and it has been taken really to mean sort of an emphasis on style over story over content mm. and almost art for art's sake, in which we, the art, the artist and the painting almost act autonomously. Um, and it has, in a way, yes, it, I mean, it's definitely uh, sort of underlying sort of that lack of, of content. Mm. Um, and in a way, also, it was a within the context of Western art history, it was sort of a response to a Western art tradition that had grown sort of tired, sort of a tradition which had sort of tended towards realism. And although it had made many great achievements, uh, which, which can't be doubted, for example, um, as a, an auxiliary means of spreading the Christian Catholic message in visual form, especially in churches, what had happened was sort of a gradual secularization of the image as it moved further away from sort of what you might deem the Eastern tradition of the icon, uh, in which the image had gradually lost its supernatural edge towards sort of a hyper-realism. And modernism then came along starting in the 19th century, which was not a reaction, but a response, really. Mm-hmm. And where the artist sought to go beyond sort of the literal and towards more uh, sort of the image as a, as a symbol or a paraphrase mm. of something else. Um, one of my favorite tasks uh, is to help choose the cover art. And of course, we were delighted to be able to put some Sutherland on the cover. And indeed, it is the crucifixion, uh, which uh, is maybe a good way segue into talking about his art You said that Sutherland at one point said, the crucifixion idea interested me. 
because it has a duality which has always fascinated me. It is the most tragic of all themes, yet inherent in it is the promise of salvation. It is the symbol of the precarious, balanced moment, the hair's breadth between black and white. Um, I, I was immediately drawn to this image, especially for the cover. Um, I think if there is a way in which Sutherland is very successful in embodying uh, Catholic thought, it is capturing this paradoxical tension that's so central to all that we believe, this constant tension between God, man, virgin mother, we lay down our life to gain it. And, uh, you know, as he says here, a startling failure and yet salvation, all held, upheld in this in this one image. Can you talk about some of the, the works, uh, the religious works that he did? Uh, of course. Um, well, I think it's first important to mention, uh, to focus on the crucifixion, mm -hmm. uh, which was painted in 1946. Uh, and I think this was the first work when Sutherland was ex so specifically, uh, explicitly religious. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it was a work commissioned by a man named uh, Walter Hussey, who suggested to uh, Sutherland, uh, the dear chap, would you, would you mind painting some sort of work for our church in Northampton? Um, and at this time, Sutherland had sort of turned modernist. And he was, I think, looking for a way to paint a religious work of art, which was not... Um, as sort of that using that modern phrase, not kitsch. It was mm -hmm. sort of because he, he did believe that a lot of modern art had become sort of sentimental um, and it had actually sort of come divorced from sort of the frontier of sort of contemporary art uh, in Europe. And you mentioned sort of this, this tension um, and actually this tension, which, which is actually fairly neatly, um, can be quite neatly distinguished between the Western and the Eastern traditions. Was like starting with Giotto, um, Giotto mm. actually slightly before that in the 12th century, there had been a tendency more towards realism, as I've already mentioned, which you see in sort of the image of Christ, and which you get, for example, in Holbein's image of of the dead Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think I think it was Dostoevsky who actually in one of his novels, I think it was the the idiot, um, one of the characters looks at this Holbein painting and he complains that. Uh, this image might cause a man to lose his faith. Yes. In other words, Western art had gradually sort of put such an emphasis on the humanity of Christ that it had actually lost sight of his divinity. Mm -hmm. And this is where actually Sutherland's own response could actually use modernism because modernism wasn't actually so interested in, in realism. Mm -hmm. And you could actually use modernism to actually go to a less realistic vision of, of Christ, especially on the cross, and sort of use, sort of emphasize more color and um, particular forms to actually sort of emphasize once again that divinity of Christ. And really this crucifixion painting was really his first attempt to sort of forward this sort of return almost to the, the icon. A lot of people would probably say, though, well, maybe, you know, maybe Hans Holbein went too far in one direction, but modern art to them, you know, I mean, they would might, might have the reaction that Churchill did about, well, this is a splendid example, and, you know, and mean it in a way that, well, 
uh, you know, this is this doesn't work. What what makes something like the crucifixion work in this way and actually show the glory of God through this this experimentation? Well, I, I wouldn't say that it was an entirely sex, successful uh, painting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the problems is that when you look at this image, it, it's, it's certainly a startling image, but it, it still does come across as sort of an, an emaciated corpse nailed to a plank of wood. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like the Christ has been butchered and he's lying in an abattoir. Where Sutherland's image falls short here is that I think it emphasizes too much the the defeat of, mm-hmm. of Christ, I think. And it doesn't, it's it's not a sentimental picture, but at the same time, mm-hmm. it there's there's an absence of even pointing towards the victory mm. of Christ after the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Sutherland actually recognized this, and he uh, and in later works, particularly um, for example, his fawn head would actually correct this actually and actually um, for a specific use of color and form. Mm-hmm where he would actually become much more modernist and abstract, and he would actually give up the image of Christ entirely and use the image of the fawn as a paraphrase to, so as a stand-in for the Christ. So he could at once be modernist and sort of move forward, but at the same time, he could actually use that modernism to, in a way, navigate that tension and recon- reconcile sort of the humanity and the, the divinity of Christ yes. in a way which was sort of in keeping with the actual theological teachings of the church as well. Yeah, and we do feature that uh, image as well. Have you ever read something about the Catholic faith or a topic by a great writer or theologian or philosopher, and you wish that you could personally ask them about something they'd said or how they got to their conclusion? We experience this at the Logos Journal daily. And while we have the opportunity to learn more from that person, it's not a conversation that only a few people should be able to have. We think a lot of you would be interested in knowing and learning more. The Logos Journal and our St. Thomas Catholic Studies friends and supporters need your help to do this. It takes a good deal of effort to get this access and produce a podcast that is meaningful and helpful to you. We hope that you'll go to our podcast website, patreon.com, backslash deep down things to become a monthly subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a podcast patron and in return get access to some really great bonus content, like online access to the journal articles we discuss and additional spiritual reflections and bonus episodes offered by Father Byron Hagen and Father Bryce Evans, great friends of Logos and priests in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. And if you're a patron to the podcast, one, you get the ability to comment on the podcast, and two, you can interact directly with us, our guests, and other podcast contributors. Definitely check it out to receive access to some of the best Catholic intellects currently thinking about deep down things. That's www.patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's one word, no spaces, deep down things. Sutherland first came to my attention around 15 years ago. I was studying British artists, and I was at this time becoming more interested in Catholic intellectuals. And 
when I, I was reading about Sutherland and it was mentioned almost as a brief aside, as a footnote, essentially, that he was Catholic and that triggered something off in my mind. And then when I studied his biography more and looked at his images, so this podcast is called Deep Down Things. And I think that at his best, Sutherland's, Sutherland's art stands as a sort of a majestic affirmation of those deep down things essential to Catholic belief mm. and the knowledge that the world is indeed charged with the grandeur of God. And if art's chief purpose is to carry the soul beyond creation, as Maritain said, then each generation needs its Sutherland um, to carry it through the window into the kingdom as what the icon is indeed said to be by any means possible and to find God even in a piece of gorse. And it was actually one of uh, mm -hmm. Sutherland's work, Gorse on a Sea Wall, which was painted in 1939, I think which was actually one of, one of a key moment for Sutherland, um, that you have this sort of image of the gorse, um, which I'm not sure how popular, I mean, sort of how widespread gorse is in America, but gorse is this particularly prickly plant, which you will find in, for example, in Pembrokeshire, in Western Wales. Um, and gradually, Sutherland was very taken with these sort of prick, the prickliness and these forms, which he would eventually um, he would use in his image of the crucifixion, and also then his studies of forms, which were used as a paraphrase, as a stand-in for the crucifixion. And he was especially entertained by these dramatic, rather more sinister landscapes, which you won't find in the home counties. So you won't find them in Sussex, you won't find them in Kent, but you will find them in such a county as Pembrokeshire, which is this very strange, rocky, almost uh, elemental landscape, which Sutherland first visited, I think, in 1934, which was really a, a very significant moment. And he would actually go on to say that Pembrokeshire was the landscape where he first really learned to paint. Because initially, when he was much younger, he actually started off as somebody who made these really delicate, I suppose somewhat old-fashioned etchings in the 1920s. Sutherland was born in 1903. And these etchings were influenced by a, a man called Frederick Griggs, who was this Catholic um, sort of draftsman who painted these idyllic sort of superficial of demi scenes of a sort of a demi paradise England, which never really existed, but they were sort of comforting and the, these somewhat romantic images, mostly of the home counties of, of Kent. But it was actually it was the economic crisis in the 1930s which sort of changed his direction because a lot of his etchings were actually painted for the U.S. market, and that dried up after the Wall Street crash. So he was actually obliged. Yeah. by this catastrophe to actually sort of move forward with his art. And really the first, I would say, original piece of Sutherland's sort of artistic efforts is a, a, a print called Pastoral, where it's, I think it's rather ironically um, named because you do, for the first time, have this sense of the sinister. Yeah, You will you'll see these two trees like, tentacles stripped bare, uh, which almost you feel if you would walk past it, you'd feel it might suddenly lash out at you. Mm. And there's also 
you've got sort of a, a dead tree almost hollowed out and it's almost got this gaping mouth you really start to get the sense of the object not the landscape but the object and at the time when i was first considering his work this actually reminded me of tolkien and tolkien's what he would term the perilous realm mm-hmm. and if you think of, for example, the old forest in the Lord of the Rings or Fangorn Forest, you, you again have this sense of these trees of personalities, but there's also something slightly, there's a hint of, of danger in all of this. Yeah. And I think, okay, and I thought to myself, okay, this is, this is significant here. Did this actually mean something? And is it just a coincidence that, that Tolkien was also a Catholic and his the Lord of the Rings is a profoundly Catholic work and and I actually, I don't think that Sutherland realized this at the time. He was not a cradle Catholic. He became Catholic because he married his wife, who was a Catholic, uh, Kathleen. Sutherland was always very, he, he didn't mind talking about modernism, but he was always slightly hesitant when somebody asked him how Catholic his work was. Mm-hmm. Did it in any way influence his art? But there, there was um, an article I found in, World Review, which was around about 1949, where an art critic noticed a lot of these Catholic sort of, um, authors in his library in Kent, and he asked them, "How does you know how how has your Catholic faith influenced you?" And Sutherland made quite a, a stunning statement, actually. That firstly, that he found it quite natural to become a Catholic, um, that it was like coming home. Mm. And then he also said, the church objectifies the mysterious and the unknown. It, it gave my aspirations towards certain ends a more clearly defined direction than I could ever have found alone. Mm-hmm. It gave my conception of a system whereby all things created human and otherwise down to the smallest atom are integrated. And that it was from his Catholic faith that he got a sense of the carnalization of his thoughts and this sort of gave me the idea that from so 1926 onwards, from when he got married, his Catholicism was not necessarily an incidental element in his work, and that his neo-romanticism, his so-called romanticism, might actually be indicative of a, a Catholic sensibility. Yeah. So in other words, his romanticism, the romanticism of the 20th century, embraced the language of modernism as a mode of religious expression um, reconciling itself with modernism and Catholic theological precepts. Uh, and, and again, I, I made the case in my article for Logos that Sutherland saw his work as a type of icon, which through modernism didn't really care for realism anyway. And in yeah. fact, it, 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 it was almost a, an open repudiation of realism. He could go back to the Eastern tradition of using color and sort of a more, a less realistic way of depiction to go back to the idea of emphasizing this, this sort of the spirituality, almost as the supercharged supernaturalism, not just within so a religious figure such as Christ, but also within the landscape itself. So like Gerard Manley Hopkins emphasizing that the world is indeed charged with the grandeur of God. Mm-hmm. Did he ever do figures again or did he stick to these landscape 
things from after after the crucifixion with this sort of half successful view did he ever go go back to anything more uh specifically uh religious imagery or did he stick to things like gorse um well he would come back from time to time. He also paint, he painted a, nu- a number of studies of the crucifixion. And he, there is another crucifixion in a church in London mm-hmm. at St. Aidan's. But actually, more, more importantly, I think, he became obsessed with this, I suppose, I suppose more modernist idea of, of paraphrase, of finding a different way of, of yeah. saying something. So he looked at the figure of the crucified, the crucified Christ, especially crowned with... Forms, and he said he took those forms and he made that the center of of his his work. That that you didn't need, you no longer needed the figure of the Christ. You could just have <laughs> the forms standing alone in a self-contained form, um, which he'd actually an idea which had come to him through Picasso and Picasso's sort of language, modernistic language, um, which is also interesting because it's often said that. The icon is itself a sort of a form of of writing. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not in itself supposed to be purely an image. It's almost a sort of a scripture in uh, a pictorial form. It's uh, helpful in the article. We do have gorse on a seawall, along with thornhead and pastoral. So you can sort of follow the. Uh, um, uh, you can follow the the trail from that uh, his sort of fascination with that prickly <laughs> something yeah. slightly um, devilish or dangerous, and and how he translates that into Thornhead, which is really a remarkable image. So be sure to look for those on on our uh, podcast. Yeah, we also have pastoral, which uh, Daniel's yes. been talking about, and I, I think it's kind of fascinating from what you've said. That you know, pastor. If pastoral marks the turn, it, uh, it's interesting that it has that sort of sinister feel to it. But I don't, I don't, I don't get that uh, sinister feeling from either gorse on a seawall or the thorn cross. Uh, it seems to me that there we have the mixture. I mean, clearly, clearly there's something a little dark about it. But his use of colors, I do, I do think, matches what you said about balance. Do you, do you think that's correct? Yes, not not all of Sutherland's works are, have this sinister quality, but I, I think it was for him an entry into this world, this way of Catholic thinking, almost where it really almost harkens back to a more medieval concept of the landscape, mm-hmm. in which uh, you, so if you were a medieval living in 13th century. England, you would look at the wood and it was not just a wood. It was in many ways a sinister place. Children wouldn't dare to go too deep into the wood for fear of being taken away by a mischievous pub goblin. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this also links into this idea of sort of this sacramental view mm-hmm. as well, in which there's a certain equality uh, assigned to the simplest of objects, which are almost seen as, as an echo of God sort of in his creation. It's almost this Thomist idea of where the soul is actually, rather the, the material flesh is an extension of, of the soul. Yeah. But yes, it was certainly, it was a, an entryway, I think. And yeah. he would 
return to so especially, I mean, you get more of the sinister edge with Sutherland when you look at his work with woods and trees, which mm-hmm. was uh, fairly typical of art of that time, especially the neo-romantics. Yeah. And the, the, the English artist around this time was especially obsessed with the notion of a spirit of, of place and how this was found not really in the city, but in these pastoral scenes. But as you say, I think Sutherland leapt forward and he went beyond this sort of sinister edge and he became, when he became more interested in his more specific, explicitly religious imagery, he no longer really needed this sort of sinister edge. And he was really more interested in in this balance um, where you see the crucifixion as almost, as Chesterton said, it it was the the cross can't be defeated because it it is defeat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that Sutherland reconciled this this tension was not in his first image of the crucifixion, um, but actually when you look at Fawnhead, you see how he's used colours. So you you'll see the form, which is a, a brilliant orange, uh, and then you've got it's against a, a blue, a very bright blue, almost a Mediterranean blue um, sort of sky. Yeah. And Sutherland would say that it it seems so bright and blue to him because it could so easily be black. And that's where you, he's ve- he's touching upon that sort of that contrast and that sort of that that tension which you see in that sort of dramatic moment when Christ is actually being crucified. And that's the moment upon which all history sort of hinges. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, where his his modernism came in particular use i think i mean certainly this such an image as this it won't speak to everyone i think yeah and in a way it actually it it for i think modernism forces you to think and actually to use Mm. the imagination i think the problem with realism is that it it almost does the work for you it does too much for you Mm -hmm. yeah and and also like this is apart from it it not always emphasizing to a great enough degree, the divinity of Christ, um, it, it will eventually, I think, almost be too cheap and sentimental. Again, it, it, it's kitsch almost. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's that wonderful phrase that um, I think if you want, if you want proof of the uh, infinite mercy of God, all you have to do is look at the bad pictures that have been painted of him and his, um, <laughs> right. his uh, hesitation on uh, bringing down that Old Testament fury on those that's right. Although, I mean, you have to say, though, that kitsch is a sign of, of real living faith, isn't it? I mean, God God loves a lot of people <laughs> like that. But he, he certainly also loves great artists uh, who are trying to do something new to give that balance. And I think that's a, that's a great place to end. Where, where can we see more of, of Graham Sutherland and, and find out a little bit more about, about his work? Well, if you want to really get to grips with Sutherland, you would have to go to Tate Britain in London, yeah. where they, mm. until recently, they did have uh, his works there. Unfortunately, because of the the current pandemic, it's not been so easy to go there. But you will find some of his images there. But I think the best gallery right now is just to find images online or just yeah. peruse the contents of Logos and uh, the article, which you very kindly placed the images, some of the images in. All right, that's wonderful. What what projects do you have? lined up. Are you working on anything new? Uh, I'm currently very interested in the theology of, of death and how it relates to sort of suffering and eschatology. And I'm also looking at 
related to this, the the work of the Catholic poet Roy Campbell. Oh, fantastic. Ooh, keep us in mind. Keep us in mind for <laughs> Stay that. Stay tuned. All right. Well, thank you again, Daniel. This has been another great episode of Deep Down Things. I'm Dave Devil with Liz Kelly. We've been hearing from Daniel Frampton, an English writer and lecturer who's been speaking to us about Graham Sutherland. Thank you and God bless. Deep Down Things is part of the Catholic Answers family of podcasts. For lots more great Catholic radio and podcast programming, please download the Catholic Answers Live app.